It seems like the past century has been least kind to Ukraine of all the countries in Europe. Fought over repeatedly in World War II by rampaging armies, which came off the back of revolution, civil war, terror, and the genocide of the Holodomor. Ukraine has been played with monumental events, wars, famines, political upheavals, but there's a recurring theme to this. It's the struggle to break away from Russia, which, like an abusive husband, refuses to let Ukraine go, while threatening to destroy everything in retribution. Putin is just the latest incarnation of leaders who've pursued monstrous policies of imperialism, domination, and genocidal action whenever they felt Ukraine slipping out of their control. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the materials we create, please do like and subscribe so you can help people discover our fantastic guests. Andrew S. Weiss is James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. There he leads an international team of experts on Russia, Ukraine and the wider region. He has previously been a director at the RAND Center for Russia and Eurasia. Andrew's career has spanned both public and private sectors. He served as director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian affairs on the National Security Council staff as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff and as policy assistant in the office for the Undersecretary of Defense during the administrations of President Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Well, we're going to discuss your book, but before we get into that, this is a question I ask uh, almost ever on the channel. Were you surprised at the outbreak of full-scale war in February of this year? And given your close study of Vladimir Putin as a political figure and as a personality, do you think this year has been out of character for him? Um, good question. So, as you know, people in the think tank industry are... Uh, graded on a curve. And, you know, there's very little accountability for what we say. Um, you know, it's a, it's also the case that people, you know, we're, we're not, we're dealing with imperfect information. Um, and we, you know, try to be helpful in putting some broader context on things, or perhaps, you know, offering immediate analysis. Um, I had something unusual happen to me, which was that I was the co-author of a paper that we wrote in October of 2021, my colleague Eugene Rumer and I, and the paper uh, was entitled Ukraine, Putin's Unfinished Business. And it was publicly released in November after being passed around in Samistat form um, in various Western governments. Um, and that paper really laid out the predicate for war and why Putin was going to go to war in Ukraine, what his strategic imperative was, what he saw as the opening uh, that was created in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, Angela Merkel's departure as German chancellor, and then just the disarray that was in place at that time inside Ukraine. So we, you know, that paper got a lot of attention at the time. I don't think that's ever happened in my career. Um, probably will never happen again. So I don't think I should write anything else um, because it was the, you know, the first time that I, um, you know, had, you know, the ability to, you know, claim that I saw it coming. Um, but at the same time, just to be really brutally honest, the actual face of the war and what we all witnessed um, in the early days was so horrifying and just, you know, and still is completely dismaying and horrifying that, that you know, I don't think 
anyone can say, oh, I, you know, I wasn't surprised. I think the savagery, the criminality, um, and the incompetence that the Russians have displayed is still, you know, are all still really shocking. Um, and you can't get used to it. Um, on the second part of your question about sort of was any of this, if I, if I am correct in remembering your question about sort of is this out of character for Putin? Um, a war like this that's, you know, unprovoked, that's just sheer naked aggression, this is different. This is a, 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 a level of overreach and miscalculation that we haven't seen Putin engage in before, but it built on a foundation of, you know, provocative moves and depends on when you want to start the clock. You know, some people start the clock in 2008 with the invasion of Georgia. Some people start the clock a little later. The war obviously really started in 2014. None of this had to happen. I mean, all of this is not just a natural dispute between Russia and Ukraine or the natural byproduct of Ukraine's quest for, for independence. This is, I think, largely a product of, of the um of the you know the both the level of opportunism that i mentioned before as well as a series of sort of miscalculations and grievances that that putin uh collected over the course of his 20 years in power and then also just a feeling of you know being a you know a, a grand man of history whose audacity um had you know made russia great again and anyways i'm happy to to drill down on any of that um if that's helpful no, that's fantastic. And um, all these insights here, uh, and of course, you know, some people start the clock even early with Grozny, which, of course, at that point, you know, the West was happy to turn a blind eye to um, those wars which he sort of inherited from from, from Yeltsin. Um, but let's let's join the conversation up with the book. Um, you've seen from a political point of view how this has played out and Putin's evolution. But you've written an extraordinary book. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's maybe, is it the first um, graphic novel of this particular kind uh, relating to Putin and Russia? There's another one uh, by a British author named Daryl Cunningham that came out about maybe a year and a half ago, year, year and a half ago. Um, I haven't read it, but but I think Daryl Cunningham is a really well-regarded British cartoonist. So um, people should have a look. Well, could you give me the background for the book? Because I'm intrigued about how it came about, how you've gone from your uh, your your career in Washington to to this extraordinary uh, creation. And we'll put a link, obviously, in the uh, the video so people can check it out and, and get themselves a copy. But could, what what was the genesis of the project? And then, of course, we're going to go into, I guess, the challenges and difficulties of planning it out, collaborating, writing, and and all those uh, details. Yeah, no, sure thing. So the two sort of key driving forces in my uh, quirky uh, career move here of doing a graphic novel, which wasn't you know, the customary thing for a, a person working at a think tank or ex-government official, obviously. Um, one is the genre is great. I really think this is a, you know, it's a pretty special genre when it works. And some of the most powerful books in graphic novel form of tackled very hard subjects. There's a book which I haven't read about uh, by uh, the former cast member of Star Wars about what it was like to be in an internment camp uh, as a Japanese American during World War II. There are great books about, um, about the Holocaust, about the civil rights movement in the US, about the Iranian revolution 
about Nazi Germany. So I mean, like this, this is a powerful intellectual format um, that, you know, people should appreciate. And I was really, you know, thinking there was a story here that would work well in the format. Um, but then also, I was really aware that people in the think tank universe or the Russia policy universe tend to be a somewhat insular bunch. And that a lot of our work is aimed at each other. Um, sometimes we get invited to provide comments to the media, which is a, you know, a nice thing, but it's often about something that's right now. What's the, you know, what's your immediate reaction to this thing that just happened? And it's hard to step back and provide a bigger context and explain, you know, as I tried to do in this book, you know, why is Putin acting this way? What is it about the course of his career that led us to this point? And then also, what is it about Russia's thousand year history that has led us to this point and to situate the things that everyone's talking about, the war in Ukraine, um, things like that, in that bigger scope. Um, and the graphic novel is just a great way to do that, because you can jump in and out of the timeline, you don't have to, you know, it, you know, the joy of comics is that, you know, time is a relative device. And the thing that draws your attention are just the the panels right in front of you, as opposed to, you know, a thousand page essay. And some people may have, you know, frankly, um, you know, there are good books that are a thousand pages long about Russia, there are plenty of them, but not everybody has the time to dig in um, and really, you know, spend that kind of, you know, concerted attention on, on a book at that length. I think it's a really interesting point, because, you know, I spend quite a lot of time arguing with, um, I guess they're a fringe, but arguing with people about uh, what the causes of the war were. And of course, on on a certain sort of, uh, sometimes on the sort of uh, far left, far right, you get the argument, well, this is fundamentally NATO's fault, etc. But whether you're speaking to people who are, you know, aligned with your point of view or not, you tend to revert to abstractions to talk about events on this kind of scale. I think unique quality of your book is that it's that biographical element. It blends the history and the big picture events with the story of a single man. And I think it brings back the idea that none of this was actually inevitable. Uh, none of this had to happen. And that the personal qualities of one flawed individual have perhaps amplified or even diverted historical trends. Well, thanks for for saying all that. Uh, I can't top what you just said, but um, yeah, Putin was an accidental president and was picked in a pretty arbitrary fashion by the the inner circle around Boris Yeltsin as his time in office was petering out. And the main thing people saw in him was that he was loyal, that he was a hard worker, and that he wasn't likely to be off the leash. And that you know that the inner circle around Yeltsin would, would basically be able to keep him uh, from acting too independently. And they had a, you know, an unwritten understanding that he would protect that group of people from prosecution, that he would basically keep the system in place that he had inherited. And, you know, Putin didn't have the attributes that he now is widely believed to have this kind of big personality, the machismo, um, and this kind of, you know, man of action image, and all that stuff was conjured up, basically whole cloth by the Kremlin's messaging apparatus and PR teams to give the Russian people both the reassurance that the country was being passed into good hands, even if no one had ever heard of Vladimir Putin before, um, as well as to kind of create this 
you know, cartoonish quality of their leader to make him seem like a, you know, a person worthy of being a grand figure. And, you know, all the cartoonish elements that were really sort of an attempt to kind of take the worst of Hollywood in the 80s, you know, the kind of action hero stuff. You know, they they had literally in the earliest days when Putin was still president candidate in waiting uh, during the handover period, sort of at the end of 1999 through his formal election in early 2000, um, they had him do things like fly in a jet fighter or wear a sailor suit. Um, and it was a put on. And Putin, it, there's some funny parts in the book where people who were involved in helping orchestrate that explain how it wasn't even very comfortable for Putin to have to do this stuff because it was, you know, it was play acting and it wasn't what he was naturally comfortable doing. Um, and then there's a great line in the book from one of his former political advisors where eventually that play acting became the guy and that sort of took over, you know, the persona became the person as opposed to um, vice versa. Um, or I'm sorry, it, as you know, no, the, the persona became the person. So, you know, it, it was it was a life imitating art reality. But I do think we in the West, the, you know, the number of times you see references to Putin carrying guns, being bare chested, talking to animals, whatever it is like that has become the iconography by which we define who he is, as opposed to the fact that he was a, a middling intelligence officer at best, whose KGB career stalled out, as opposed to a person whose career was um, uh, held up because he was a hothead, as opposed to the fact that, you know, he's just not at a world, I mean, he's not the world-class figure per se that, you know, his his handlers try to portray him as. Um, it's I don't Wizard wanna... of Oz, isn't it? It's the guy behind the curtain uh... Yeah, but you know, at the same time, you know, he's been incredibly successful. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate to the point where people think there's no there there. Clearly, there is a there there, and he, you know, has had a remarkable run as Russia's leader, and we still don't know how to deal with that. Um, so, you know, I don't want to for a minute suggest that, you know, if we just strip away the artifice here, that Putin will be like the Wizard of Oz, as you say, you know, and there's just a kind of, you know an empty seat like no there's a there's a person there who has a you know authority and control of the russian state in a lot of ways but we should never overstate it or misperceive where the you know the myth and the reality are you know not totally overlapping mm. so there is an apparatus obviously that supports him in, in you know the speeches he gives but at the same time at uh, events i guess like valdai which is cancelled this year i'm going to ask in a minute about your impressions of him really drawing back from many of the uh, media initiatives that he's done in almost every year of his presidency. Um, he, he'll sometimes be in front of, uh, you know, the world, well, not the world's press, a, a, a carefully selected group of uh, journalists and some of the public and mostly created questions, but he does get the off kind of curbal. but he'll do that for hours and hours, won't he? And he'll be thinking on his feet. So he is quite eloquent. He's not necessarily an intellectual uh, in fact, he's not an intellectual at all, but he is very eloquent and and he speaks good grammatical Russian and he speaks with confidence. So there are some skills there, aren't there? Some oratory skills. Um, those weren't apparent at the beginning. Mm. And, you know, but he's been doing this for 20 years and anyone who's had the same job for 20 years gets to be OK at it. Um, and, you know, when he goes to a press conference, he seems 
to know is brief and he's well prepared. That's always been part of what propelled his career was this notion that he worked hard and uh, you know did his homework. But I I don't feel the same way about a lot of these appearances myself. I, I think of them as purely about conveying an image and the level of theatricality. Um, so the fact that he does a year-end press conference in which Russian reporters fall over themselves and carry stuffed animals to get his attention. Uh, there's a word in Russian, polshlist, which basically just means, you know, utter tawdriness. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that, which I, I personally have no time for. Um, and then as someone who, you know, punishes himself by reading transcripts or watching these broadcasts, you know, the amount you get out of it um, is inverse proportional and, you know, to in inverse proportion to the time expended. Um, you know, it's, there's not a lot of, you know, valuable insight. And because there's so much play acting and messaging going on, you know, I would always be wary about saying this reveals what Putin actually thinks. This is someone who's really good at never telling you what he actually thinks, unless it's really important. And on the Ukraine crisis, he did start to share a view of Ukraine towards the 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 you know the months leading up to the war that he meant business and that that he was you know no kidding serious about conquering Ukraine again. Um, but in the book, you know, what I've also I think tried to to do for people is to say that all of this, the trappings of grandeur, of being the heir to the czars, being the heir to the Soviet general secretaries, like all of that is intended to make Putin seem more in charge of things than he actually is. And you see this constant effort in Russia, and we see this most horribly in the, the conduct of the war, to act like, you know, Putin points his finger and something is supposed to happen, but then it doesn't. And, you know, Putin spent billions of dollars modernizing the Russian military and created what he, you know, portrayed to the world and all of us largely thought was a formidable, serious modern military. It was smaller than the Soviet military, but still modern. And now we've seen in the course of the war in Ukraine that it was, you know, not nearly as, a, you know, capable as it was advertised as being. There's a lot of that in the nature of how Russia is ruled today. And it, you know, it sort of comes back to the fact that the country's corrupt, that people play acted stuff and create Potemkin capability as opposed to actual capability. And then just the fact that, you know, people will get away with it, that, you know, there's no, you know, at least so far, very few indications that anyone's been punished for the ineptitude that this war has been uh conducted with the there's no indication that the cost of the war will you know change the policy in a western society i think something is you know is you know big a debacle as this there are consequences we have elections we have parliamentary inquiries like russia doesn't have any we have free press russia has none of that stuff and that's an interesting point i think it's one which a lot of the press sort of skirts over we ascribe a lot of russia's failures to corruption poor quality of, of, say, production of armaments and whatever, um, and disorganization and lack of strategy. But I think there's something more pernicious going on, and that maybe helps to explain why individuals haven't actually been punished, and that is nepotism. I think the entire system that he's built, that vertical, that power vertical, in a way is, is much more feudal than I think many appreciate. And it's built from top to bottom on the idea that... Um, you know, you can uh, 
get a position not through competence but through relationships um and that makes it much more difficult to 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 fire people uh if you've built this kind of edifice based on nepotism but it also tells you something of how the whole country works um how does that relate back to putin's biography itself because nepotism to an extent is what got him parachuted into this job or you know yeltsin putting him in there as a as a placeman to protect his uh, not his legacy but his family's wealth and ill-gotten gains there's a page in the book that tries to explain very much in shorthand how feudalistic the political system is and why the lack of institutions the lack of trust the lack of rule of law and the lack of formal administrative mechanisms pushes things toward the kind of system you're describing where everything's only as good as the fact that it's your brother like a blood relative or someone you've known for 40 years working with you that you couldn't possibly rely on a person you've never met to abide by their professional obligations to you or fulfill or provide a service that you've contracted for. And you've seen this in Russia, you know, throughout the post-Soviet period in particular. I mean, it was also the case that a lot of things had to be done informally in the Soviet system because a centrally directed system was always so inefficient. And the ways Russian Soviet citizens would access services or products or run a business like a state enterprise had to depend on networks of connections. Um, so that informal system is not new. Um, but what you see under Putin is that, the, and I think this is the big change, which is also you know, something that I focus on in the book, in the run-up to the war in Ukraine, a lot of the people who he had put in place during the first 20 years of his time in office, a lot of those people had aged out by the time he, by COVID, by the time COVID hit, by the time he went into this remarkable uh, self-isolation. And he was surrounded for the most part by people who are much younger than he is, who just follow orders or who sit there and whose influence is a byproduct of the proximity to the boss. And most of those people are not gonna get ahead in the system by being challenging to him. Um, they're gonna get there by saying yes, they're gonna get ahead by saying, yes, sir, or, you know, can I get you another cup of coffee? Um, and it's remarkable when you look at how, you know, even now that the government needs to provide for its military operation, it needs to have, you know, proper procedures in place to keep the economy going. There's, you know, it's still the same system. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's no accident that, you know, when the call-up occurred of new, uh, you know, draftees in the autumn, that a lot of these people showed up and couldn't get basic, you know, equipment and had to crowdsource or self-fund um, things like sleeping bags and warm underwear and stuff like that. Like, it's, you know, it really gets at the, the fact that the system, for all of its pyramidical, hierarchical nature, doesn't deliver very much on the, you know, sort of from the top down and people, you know, survive in a system like that by their wits and by their horizontal connections, a lot of which are just, you know, one or two circles out from their immediate family and associates. 
So we've got this sort of Potemkin village structure, which to many Western experts appeared far more competent and militarily capable than it actually turned out to be. But let's sort of rewind that down to Putin, because in amongst all of this, I'm going to call it fake, but in amongst all of this sort of built up, um, you know, almost duplicitous kind of facade, I'd like to go back to what is genuine about Putin? What has genuinely influenced him through his life and had an impact on him? You know, real values. I'm thinking of things like judo, uh, things like... um, 17 Days of Spring, which is something you mentioned in the book, uh, and, and so what, what are the genuine, you know, unadulterated um, influences within his early life? Yeah, the fun part of the book was sort of trying to look at Putin's childhood and upbringing and then related to how his career played out. And Putin grew up in a working class family in Leningrad after the war. Um, his family had suffered significant uh so you know uh significantly during the war he had uh, an older brother who was uh taken away from the family and died in an orphanage of diphtheria and buried in a mass grave but putin you know his parents were working class he got into a lot of trouble as a kid there's a great memoir which people might want to look up by one of his childhood german teachers and she describes this incident where when Putin was about 14 years old, um, he broke a kid's leg on purpose. And when the teacher asked him, why did you do this? Putin says, there are just some people who only understand force. Um, <laughs> this book was published a long time ago, not very well known as uh, a source out there about Putin, but it sort of captures the the fact that this was a guy in his teens who got in a lot of trouble. And, you know, but at the same time, he loved Soviet pop culture about the KGB. And you can find in various sources, the, you know, ways that, you know, he digested film and pulp fiction about the KGB, which was prevalent in the 1960s and early 70s, including the miniseries that you mentioned, 17 Moments of Spring. And what was funny is on the one hand, it motivated him to want to join the KGB. So that's, you know, part of why he knocked on the front door of the big KGB building in Leningrad when he was in ninth grade. It was a big part of why he stopped being such a, a, a street thug and really dedicated himself to his studies, both judo and the study of German language. So he eventually, like through dint of hard work, got himself into a you know good law school, Saint uh, in now Saint Petersburg, then Leningrad. Like that was a non uh, customary moment of social. Um, uh, advancement in the Soviet system, which was not any sure thing. Um, but what's funny is that after getting into the KGB, um, his career went nowhere. And he spent about 10 years from 1975 to 1985, as best we know, in real second tier, third tier roles. Um, and the book opens, the sort of the opening scene, where Putin manages after waiting 10 years to get himself into an overseas training program, and he totally screws it up. Um, by dint of having a, a short temper or getting into a fight on the Leningrad subway system. So, you know, so there's a lot there that, you know, people, I think, you know, lose sight of when they think of this KGB agent, people tend to glamorize that and project onto him a level of career success that never really happened. 
And I, I, I've even seen some attempts, I think propagandist attempts to say, oh, no, there is some extraordinary, you know, he was actually much more senior than than this biographical details suggest. And it's all very hush hush. I mean, I think he must have some kind of a chip on his shoulder because it sounds incredibly dull. And Dresden was a real backwater, wasn't it? You know, where he was eventually sent and where he observed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um he wasn't at the front of the action. He was really, uh, you know, um, stuck behind the lines, twiddling his thumbs. And even his seniors, I think, one of the quotes you've got in the book, says that, you know, all the period of 10 years he was actually in service, his particular department probably produced, you know, no work of any real note or impact. And that's quite, quite damning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt there's a lot of score settling in a lot of these accounts and the you know veracity of all these things is is not 100% well established. Like we don't have the access to all the facts, but there's nothing I've seen out there that suggests that Vladimir Putin was a high flyer or, you know, deep selected for greatness or a paragon of all the things that, you know, senior people in the KGB um, were supposed to be doing. Um, but what's interesting, and I think this is sort of an underappreciated part of understanding Putin that we need to, to really focus on and understanding what happened in Ukraine, is that in 1989, he's in this small KGB outpost. There's six officers in Dresden compared to the thousand plus who are serving in Berlin. So just give you a sense of how you know tiny the outpost was. Um, and in Dresden, there was people power on the streets. And it had a you know an important role to play in the unraveling of the the DDR, the East German system. And in these fateful weeks in October, when Putin was in Dresden, there was this crazy thing that happened where East Germans had fled the country, and there was an elaborate deal that was worked out between the East German government and the West German government to give these people access to exit visas to leave the country and move to West Germany. And Putin was in Dresden when people, it was a complicated deal that the governments worked out, but basically the, the people who had tried to leave East Germany, left leave at East Germany had to be formally expelled and they were put on sealed trains heading out of East Germany. And the trains stopped in Dresden and people who also wanted to leave stormed the train station thinking this is their last chance to get out of the country. And there were street uh, 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 there was street violence around the Dresden train station as people attacked the interior minister's troops and the Stasi. There was also um, a storming of the main Stasi prison, which was down the street from where Putin's uh, KGB offices were in Dresden a little later on. And, and uh, the point is, is that all of this, you know, sort of rapid unraveling of the East German police state, I think, sent Putin into a, a sort of a, a swivet in terms of fearing what happens when governments loosen their grip and what happens when people, like everyday people, stop being afraid of an authoritarian state. And that's been a theme throughout his time in office, that people power, what he calls color revolutions, are one of the single biggest threats to his rule. And to, uh, to keep things under wraps, he needs to be as tough as possible. And that's that's been, you know, I think part of why he's overreacted and miscalculated so badly in Ukraine, because he really saw what was happening in Ukraine, where there have been several instances of street 
revolution or people power as you know basically dress rehearsals for something similar happening in Russia itself. And that maybe is something that he he has brought to the Kremlin, and that is that uh, over-exaggerated sense of paranoia. Um, but apart from paranoia, what would you say his chief characteristics are? I mean, we also see potentially a lack of empathy. I mean, the previous person I was speaking to talks about the sort of horrific crimes and the towering indifference which Putin seems to have to, to individual life or to life of anyone outside of, of his close circle. But apart from those two characteristics, what other characteristics do you think he brought with him from not just the KGB days, but also we'll talk about in a minute, his days as a sort of mafia go-between in uh, Subchuk's administration in St. Petersburg, which was a, a hotbed of uh, criminality? Well, uh, you know, on the on most levels, I think Putin is quite nimble and cunning and calculating. And so this is a person on some level who for 20 years has been doing this, who knows the backstory on things, who's you know completely unsentimental um, and who is opportunistic. And we've seen that pay off quite well for him, whether it was in the um, what he was perceived at the time to be the masterstroke of seizing Crimea in February of 2024, I'm sorry, 2014, um, or saving the Assad regime in 2015. Um, there's another side of him, which is also pretty emotional and hot-headed. And we've seen that come out from the earliest days of his presidency. And it was something I witnessed when I was at the White House um, more than 20 years ago. And you know, seeing Putin lose his cool or have a, you know, you say paranoid, but just have a kind of fixation on the idea that the United States is seeking regime change and that they want to get Putin out of power. That, you know, the only way to deal with those kinds of threats is to be, you know, an authoritarian, but also to really keep your adversaries off balance. And that's been, I think, a big part of what motivates and drives Putin's behavior you know, for the past 20 years. Um, you know, as far as the experience, we can maybe I'll pause there and then we can talk a little bit about the Leningrad, St. Petersburg period um, in the fixer kind of world, the, you know, the kind of, you know, informal economy where Putin was clearly involved. Um, I, you know, I, I'm happy to, to pause there, but I just will say that mm. so much of Russia is informal and corrupt it's a little bit challenging to say that's where he cut his teeth or that's where, you know, it all started to get pretty shady. I think it's been pretty shady for a long time. <laughs> I wouldn't yes. say that was the, that was the, the, you know, the, the cradle of shadiness there. In some respects, it's interesting, isn't it, to compare Russia to Ukraine. And I know there are actually very different countries and I've learned more and more as I've done these podcasts about the key differences, but in some respects, the system he bought to governing Russia, uh, built on what was there before, but he also entrenched it, didn't he? The fact that there has been no transition of power, the fact that he has degraded institutions and anyone who could challenge him meant that that system of governance, which was prevalent uh, in the 90s, has remained. Whereas in Ukraine, with its chaos and its proto-democratic sort of chaos and transitions and revolutions, they have been able to evolve away from 
to an extent that purely nepotistic and uh, and uh, as you say sort of informal uh, economic sort of structure um is it the absence of strong leadership that's actually allowed um i would say some form of rules based system to emerge and and move it away from that sort of soviet economy because they came from the same place and in fact in the 90s ukraine was thought to be more uh, institutionally corrupt than than russia so let me let me just pull yeah. back the tape just a little bit and say that after the Soviet Union collapsed and Putin is marooned back in then Leningrad, gets a job working in the uh, the city government and is, you know, a helper to this mayor who's corrupt and who's, you know, got a kind of very posh public image, but doesn't deliver on any of the promises of making it a showcase city. Um, there's no doubt that the collapse of the Soviet system created these huge vacuums, and the vacuums were filled by criminal groups, by corrupt officials, by members of the security establishment, and that they all sort of fused into a new commingling of interests where criminality and corruption and abuse of office was the system, and that that has you know, that reached its apogee in any of the post-Soviet cities in what became St. Petersburg. And it was a uniquely violent, um, dangerous place. And it was known as bandit Petersburg. And um, and so when people make like, you know, uh, TV shows about the bad 90s, like they show where where things were in Petersburg at the time. It was a, it was a rough and bad place. Um, at the same time, there was the side of Putin and his crowd that were, and I think this is cardinal to who they are, and it's depicted in the book, which means supporters of a strong state as an end in itself, and that the interests of the state should should trump everything else. And yes, there's a level of cynicism in political life in Russia, and surely the fat cats got a lot fatter during uh, Putin's time, and people who knew Putin personally were given control over major state uh, and uh, commercial interests and, you know, profited handsomely uh, from taking over, for example, the state oil company, Rosneft, um, or the gas monopoly, Gazprom. So there's there's no doubt that the state's interest didn't always trump personal interest when it came to that kind of uh, self-dealing and enrichment. Um, but I would caution you about the comparisons between Russia and Ukraine a little bit. And I would focus on the period maybe you know, before 2014, before the revolution of dignity and the kind of Ukraine that existed from 1991 to then, you know, I'm not a, you know, licensed credentialed expert on Ukraine, but I will say that, you know, we saw a very cronyistic oligarchic system in Ukraine where there was state capture and where it was more competitive in the sense that oligarchs competed with each other and had access to media, but they, hollowed out the state pretty uh, pretty exhaustively to benefit themselves. And as a result, average Ukrainians, you know, fell far behind average Russians in terms of their quality of life and in their, you know, socioeconomic well-being. Some of that has to do with the fact that Russia just had more natural resources and had more of a, you know, a sort of well-run economy, uh, relatively speaking, for that region during the, the post-Soviet, post 2000 period, um, you know, under Putin, and that the level of economic governance in Russia post 2000 was better 
on measure in Russia than it was in Ukraine. But now, since the war started, I think you do see something that just Russia cannot match. And you saw it after 2014 as well, which is the strength of Ukraine's civil society. And you have an ability for average citizens to take responsibility for things and to organize themselves and to do heroic things. And that was manifest in the street revolutions in 2004 and then again in 2014. Um, and now most vividly in the defense of their their country after the Russian invasion. Russians just have never matched in the, the Putin era that level of self-organization and responsibility that Ukrainian civil society activists have. Um, at the same time, you know, the Russian government has declared war on civil society. And that's, you know, so it's not just that Russians are genetically somehow unable to do this. There's cultural reasons for it, but in sociological reasons for why people behave this way. But we just need to remember that the Putin government deliberately tried to squeeze out of that country any semblance of independent activity or non-state mandated activity and put a pretty high price on people who chose to ignore those guidelines. And is there anything in Putin's biography uh, prior to uh, St. Petersburg Um that could explain, uh, you know, this this need to absolutely sort of control. Uh, well, firstly, to stay in power um, almost you know, endlessly. He's he's clearly in the role until he expires. I would have thought otherwise he might have left on a high in twenty fourteen. So, what explains that need to cling on to power, but also the need to control and stifle any voices of dissent? Well, in 2003, you had the first of the street power, street revolutions in the post-Soviet space. There were a series of these, 2003, 2004, 2008, um, 2014. And it really made the Russian leadership really nervous. And they persuaded themselves looking at things like the Arab Spring that there was this U.S. you know, hand behind the you know people's actions that you know the cia ngos tech firms like if you read the what the russian officials portray even the october revolution as that this is all part of some bigger pattern of conspiracy and western effort to you know cripple governments that it doesn't like and you know usher them off the stage um and seek geopolitical advantage under the flag of democracy promotion so this is what they believe. And if we don't see that as a key motivating force, I think then we don't fully understand why Putin, for example, in the current crisis may do really desperate things, because he doesn't think this is just about control over some disputed territories of Ukraine that he wants to take over. This is about this very survival of his regime in the end. And he now believes that you know, this is a war for his own continued staying power as Russia's leader. Um, that didn't have to be that way, but, but you know, he's put himself in that corner. Um, I don't think these are, um, you know, at this point, given the criminality, given all the blood that's been spilled, you know, it's going to be very hard for Western governments to re-engage with Putin. So even if, you know, in some uh, hard to foresee set of circumstances, uh, there's a peace process and there is a, you know, a deal that somehow magically would emerge. I can't see the conditions for that materializing anytime soon. It's just really hard to imagine how any Western government could ever go back to some form of normal 
interactions with the Putin government um, in the future. Like it's become a pariah and it's going to stay on the the outs, you know, the outsides of the, the, the mainstream international system so long as Putin is there. You know, there's no way back at this point. That's it. And he, he saw weakness in the West after Syria. Um, he's seen what he thinks is 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 weakness and degeneracy. And yet the West has united and pushed back perhaps in a way that he he wasn't expecting. Um, do you think our response has, has taken him by surprise? Yeah, quite definitely. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, a lot of Western governments were surprised that Russia tried and failed. Um, you know, the betting was if, you know, if you haven't read the New York Times investigation, but, you know, the betting was Russia would very quickly walk all over the Ukrainians, just as it had done in 2014 and 2015. Um, and people vastly overestimated, myself included, how much resist, you know, how how successful the Russian military campaign would be. We all thought it was not going to be a fair fight. And to their great credit, the Ukrainians, you know, staved off disaster and have now punched back really hard. Um, I don't see on the horizon a, a way for the Russian government to prevail militarily, but I do see their ability to, you know, devastate Ukraine and to sort of create a shell Ukraine where there's no, you know, basic provision of services and the government has to sort of stay on life support thanks to Western economic assistance and technical assistance. Um, the, it's, by the same token, I see no indication that the West is going to give up the kind of military and other uh, security support we're providing the Ukrainians. And I don't think the Ukrainians will at any point sort of be cowed or lay down their arms. So there's a formula or a you know, set of processes that have been put in place here that to me adds up to an open-ended conflict and a war that goes on for, for a very long time. We all watch it and we all kind of want it to end because it's so horrible, but you know, A, any ceasefire or something like that's only going to benefit the Russian side because it'll give them a chance to regroup and rebuild, and that would be bad. But, you know, at the same time, the idea that, you know, the Ukrainians are not um, feeling deep existential worry that the Russians are out to exterminate them and that the only way to deal with that threat is to, to fight, um, you know, it seems self-evident to me that they're going to fight. Um, and they're not the Western tool. Like if, you know, the pre you know, president of the United States or British prime minister calls up Ukrainian counterpart and says, hey, now's the time to stop fighting. I'm not really sure that kind of recommendation gets much of a hearing. Um, you know, the people of Ukraine feel they're, you know, dealing with a quasi-genocidal onslaught. And the only way to, you know, deal with that threat is to fight. Well, my last question, I mean, I broadly absolutely agree with that. And uh, and I think they should fight because I think it's now become absolutely clear what happens to people who who give in to the Russian army. I mean, it's 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 horrific. And, uh, you know, the intelligence, of the political classes get wiped out in much the way that happened in the 1930s and uh, Stalin's deportations. Um, for my last question, I want to return back to the book because I've got two two questions, really. Uh, one is. You know, how was it working with an artist uh, to create that final product, to blend the words and the story with the artistry? That must have been, you know, quite challenging and a new experience. And the other one is really, you know, have you got any feedback on how the book is going down with your target audience, perhaps with, you know, a younger demographic who perhaps don't read political uh, articles in The Economist or The New York Times? 
So I was really lucky. I when I was first talking to the editor um, at Macmillan for second, Mark Siegel, who um, who worked with me on the book, um, he was giving me th- you know examples of different approaches and different recent graphic novels. And the ones he gave me by uh, Brian Box Brown were just magical because of Brian's style. And then, you know, a few weeks later, Mark called me up and said, Brian wants to do your book, which was something Brian had never done before. He'd never drawn someone else's book. He'd always written his own um, and illustrated his own book. So I was just kind of in heaven when I heard that Brian wanted to do this. And part of what was so fun about it was that Brian's just like, he didn't come to the project with a view that like we need a set set of of you know touchstone images like he wanted to come up with something entirely new and so when people open up the book what you'll see is each chapter has this minimalist art style and putin i'm sorry and brian has made the first chapter red and black and the second chapter is blue and black and the third chapter is yellow and black like there are these kind of very uh, severe, but really interesting aesthetic choices that Brian made. And then the last part, which was really fun about working with Brian was I was determined to not repeat any visual cliches to, to really minimize the amount of dancing bears and matryoshka dolls and things like that. Um, and hammers and sickles and, you know, all this, the iconography that dominates a lot of the way Russia is portrayed in our pop culture. And I would just spend endless hours on Google image search, trying to find Soviet or Russian images that were not part of the standard discourse. And Brian was really psyched about that because he comes to things with a, you know, indie sensibility, like he's not, you know, he's not really interested in trafficking and all the mainstream stuff. But the thing that's fun about him is he's really into pop culture. And because so much of Putin's rise to power was animated by Soviet pop culture, we were able to weave some of that into it. And the last thing I'll say, which shows my own ignorance, was that Brian was also at times gaming the audience and, you know, potentially even gaming me because there are Easter eggs, you know, hidden in the book. And I didn't even know what an Easter egg was when I started writing the book. So it was just it's just very fun to kind of collaborate with somebody like that who's got a totally different background. And then the hope is that, you know, people, you know, are going to respond to that and see that, you know, Brian and I are very different and we brought really different strengths to this project. That's fantastic. And uh, I don't know if you had much connection with uh, with people who've bought the book or with, you know, teenagers, people in their 20s, 30s, whatever. But do you have you had much interaction after people have had a chance to read it? Well, I mean, it's probably self-selecting, you know, because these are all people maybe, you know, who are inclined to say nice things. But I keep getting streams of photos of readers. And so some of those readers are people in their 80s, you know, photos of kids in their, you know, like 10 or 11, as young as 10 or 11 who are reading it, college age people. So, I mean, it's really, it's, it's remarkable to me how the book seems resonant across all these different demographics and backgrounds. And it's, you know, it's well exceeded any expectation I had that I was going to reach reach people that diverse I mean it's a fantastic book I've got to recommend to everyone watching this to uh, get themselves a copy uh, especially with Christmas coming up it's not necessarily the jolliest of reads but it, it really brings history to life in a an extremely visual way and I think provides insights into 
uh, you know, the life of an extremely important individual in the world, which uh, you don't tend to get from the, the mainstream media. Um, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for you speaking uh, to me today, Andrew. And um, thanks so much for explaining this extraordinary uh, project you've been involved in. Oh, Jonathan, you're very kind to say all that. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. You too. Thank you.